turn to your Bibles, Pew Bible, or follow on the screens on either side of me or your, your phones. To 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. This is the word of the Lord. Now, when a king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all of his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in the house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? Have I not lived in a house since the day I brought the, I have not lived in a house since the day I brought the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving around in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I moved with all the people of Israel, did I ever speak a word to any of the judges of Israel? Whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be a prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and I have cut off all of your enemies from before you. And I will make your name great like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall come and afflict them no more as formerly. From the time I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all of your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, who put it away, who whom I put away before you and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever, ever in accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision. Nathan spoke to David. So ends the reading of God's word. Children ages 18 months to two years are invited to proceed to the Little Landing Toddlers. And children ages three years old through kindergarten are invited to proceed to the Little Landing. Good morning, faith family at the Landing. Would you pray with me as we ask God's help to look again to this wonderful passage? Speak, O Lord, for your servants. We are listening. We want to hear your voice for salvation. There's some who need a saving touch from you. And maybe, Lord, you'll do it right now. Some need direction in life because it's felt confusing. Would you give plain, clear pointers from 2 Samuel 7? Some need to be reminded that all of us stand under your forgiving grace. And they come heavy burdened with guilt and shame. Would you lift it today? Some need to know that they're included in the body of Christ and connected and loved and that there are strong, muscular sinews of love between us 
forge them surgically by your Spirit, I pray, through this passage. Do 10,000 more wonderful things that I can't think of to pray by the power of your infinitely precious Word through the foolishness of my preaching and the unimpeachable glory of Holy Scripture. Hover sweet by your Spirit upon me and upon us. Dwell within us as we've received you. And speak to us, Lord, we need you. Oh, we need you. And there are those whose lives are so distant from you that they're not joining by live stream and they're not here right now. And they need you as well. Maybe you mean for us to be the conduit between you and them. Equip us, I pray, from Second Samuel 7. In Jesus' name I ask it. Amen. In this most seminal speech by Yahweh, the triune God, addressing in the night Nathan, his prophet, serving his king David. David's vision is enlarged. We saw this last week. David came and said, God, I've got a cedar house and, and you've got a tent. You're camping and I've got a great place to live. Let me build you a house, God. I've, I've got people. I got I got numbers I can call. Let me take care of you, God. I'll do it for you. We approach God that way often. You need me, God, don't you? David had a high view of himself when he started out this chapter, and he needed to have his view of God massively enlarged from tiny to the Titanic. Also, David had the just as equal need of having his own view of himself shrunk down. Commensurate with a high view of the glory of God is your own view coming to the point where you say, I'm not as big as I think I am. In fact, I'm I'm really part of a small, tiny little blue ball that's floating in this massive universe. And God has focused his attention on me. Who am I being small? I want to decrease so that in me he might increase. You might know the Rhone River starts with a glacier in the Swiss Alps, just a drip. From a glacier high up in the glory of the Swiss Alps. And that drip from the glacier becomes a little stream and a trickle. And it swells and grows into a larger river that comes all the way down in Switzerland to the city of Geneva. And it becomes and feeds Lake Geneva. It's a beautiful place in the world God has created. Out of Lake Geneva, the Rhone River continues now, much stronger and swelled much larger, and it flows across the border into France and all the way down through southern France till it becomes a mighty river that flows right into the Mediterranean Sea in a beautiful city in southern France called Marseille. This passage that we're looking at right now that Larry just read is the glacier dripping. David is Lake Geneva, and Jesus Christ is the Mediterranean Sea. When you read the glorious promises God gives here through Nathan the prophet to David, he's saying this might look like a really small little trickle in this short little passage, but I'm actually beginning a mighty river that feeds the great Mediterranean Sea, and that sea connected to all the waters of the globe. 
We saw last week in part one of this message, five promises that God gave through Nathan to David to enlarge David's view of God and to shrink down to the right size David's view of himself. First, we saw God made David great. It wasn't the other way around. Second, we saw God has been with David everywhere. He can't be boxed in, therefore. Third, we saw God will make David's name great. David doesn't make his name great. God makes his name great. Fourth, we saw God planted David and his people in a garden. They didn't plant for themselves the land that they lived in. It was a gift from God. And fifth, we saw God gives peace and rest to Israel and David. They don't give peace and rest to him. Now I want you to see four more promises. I told you there's a total of nine. The five are done. Here's the four. And these are not only to enlarge our view of God, but at the same time, give you a right view of yourself and all the while prepare us to come to the Lord's table. Look at verse 11 with me. The last half or phrase of verse 11 says, moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled, you lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you. You shall be who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Here's the promise. God's greatness surpasses any man made building. God's greatness surpasses any man made building. His greatness is on display in the fact that he's doing a careful turn of phrase. David wanted to build God a house. God says, I'm going to make you into a house. You hear the switch? David said, oh, Lord, I want to build you a structure with cedar just like mine. And God says, no, David, I'm going to make you into a house, a dynasty. People from your family line are going to grow and sit on your throne forever and ever. Surely this is a reference to Solomon and the other sons of David who would sit on the throne. But do you hear how shocking this is? Because in first and second Samuel, we've seen lots of screwed up families, haven't we? Oh, my goodness. Eli and his two sons, they were messed up. They were they were um, they were disobedient to, to the like a corruption level, like mafia level. Remember that? Uh, and then Samuel comes along and we think, oh, he's going to be a great dad. His two sons screwed up, too. They're a mess. That's the church family. And they're still a mess. Then Saul comes along and you think, oh, come on, Saul, head and shoulders above the rest. You can do it. And he just keeps messing up and messing up, even though God mercifully gives him a great son in Jonathan. Saul and Jonathan, they weren't the dynasty. They weren't the house. They weren't the lineage that we hope in. Maybe it'll be David. Aren't you tempted to think David's the hero? He's not. David screws up, too. He's a royal mess. Cancel him. He's just Lake Geneva. We can't hope in David. David's not enough. He has a son, Solomon. Maybe it'll be Solomon. Nah. You don't do that with all those wives and all the cattle and all that wealth and all that pride. You don't lead God's people the way Solomon did. This first promise is that God is going to so work in the life of sinners who only deserve death, that he will cause the name of David 
and the lineage and house of David to continue forever. The only way that could happen is one of two ways, right? Either God could raise up from David so many male heirs who all do the right thing eventually that there is constantly a male heir from David's line sitting on the throne. That has never happened. It never will happen. The only other way God can do it is if God finally gives to David one male heir who never sins and therefore never dies. There's a hint. Look real carefully with me at verse 12. You'd see this more clearly in the Hebrew. I'm going to give you the Hebrew word because you might find it interesting. I hope you do. It's what God ordained for the writer to write. Verse 12. I will raise up. Literally, it's resurrect. Hakim in Hebrew. I will raise up your offspring after you. Clever. Clever hint from God saying to David, get this, David, I'm going to do a resurrection. You're going, to ha- you're going to have sinners and those sinners all deserve death. And I'm going to raise up after you one who will sit on your throne forever. There's a hint to to the Mediterranean of Jesus Christ in his ministry in that word, that verb, Hakim, raise up or resurrect. God promises, as we know from the rest of the Old Testament and the New Testament, that From the line of David will come the son of David and he will sit on the throne forever and ever. And he himself will never sin and therefore never dies owing to his own sin. He, in fact, is Jesus Christ, the son of God, the son of David. And he's the one who remains on the throne forever and ever. The whole witness of Scripture proclaims it. But it's hinted at here as I tried to make plain in my little geographical image that I've lodged in your mind. This is the glacier that drips to start the river, pressing through David's life in Lake Geneva all the way to the mighty waters of the Mediterranean. So the question we should ask then is, how should we live in this house that God is building Out of David, making David into a dynasty. Paul answers that question when he's writing many hundreds of years later to Timothy. Listen to 1 Timothy 3.14. Paul writes to Timothy, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. That is, Paul is saying to Timothy, you believers in Jesus Christ are part of the grand house that God is building. You ought to know how to behave in the household of God. And then he says the household of God is defined as the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So here's a very practical application of this first observation, this first promise. If you love the fact that Jesus Christ is born of the line of David, and if you are Part of that house of David, by believing in Jesus Christ, every believer, no matter what ethnicity you come from, you're part of that house. You should say to yourself, I want to be living inside the household of God. And the way I'm going to do that is to love the truth. It's a stunning, jarring set of circumstances that ought not be allowed to continue when you find a believer in Jesus Christ saying, I'm on my way to heaven. The spirit fills me. I'm trusting in Jesus Christ. Yet my life is fraught and filled with anxiety. 
Something ought to be quickly ministered to in that situation. The fears and the, and the depression, despondency and the, the doubt and the anxiousness should be attended to. Why? Because God has said you're part of the house of God. The household of God is the pillar and buttress of truth. If you know that David is your spiritual ancestor, that Christ is your savior and Lord and king and indwelling friend, then God, through his truth, blasts away anxiety with his pillar and buttress of truth. Oh, there's room for medicines. There's room for good night's sleep. There's room for good diets. There's room for exercise. There's room for all manner of wise and good, healthy habits. There's good for good room for friendships. And there's room for all manner of other uh, healthy lifestyle choices that enable us to live free from depression, despondency and anxiety. But once all of those are successfully at work in your life, you still say, I want to know beyond the shadow of a doubt that I am at peace with the living God. I want to know that I'm ready to die. I want to know that I am standing before judgment clean. Oh, the need that my heart has for that kind of peace and yours does as well. So Paul says the way you function and serve in the household of God, this Christ bought entrance into David's house, as it were, is by living and standing for the truth. Read your Bible every day. Get into a Bible study. If you're not, let's start one. Purchase and read good podcasts, books, and other excellent content that points you to the truth. The life-giving, anxiety-blasting, freedom-producing truth of the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he says in his word. In the household of God, we honor this builder and owner and we strengthen the very foundation in which we live by the timbers, not of cedar, but precious timbers of the truth. That we stand on and that we construct as the church here at the landing or the church family that you're a part of. Second promise is verse 13. God's glory surpasses any man-made building. First, it was God's greatness in this house that he's going to build. Now it's his glory that surpasses any man-made building. And you'll see it unfold in God's holy name. Look at verse 13. He, talking about Solomon now and all those who come after Solomon will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. It's the same observation. Is this Solomon? Of course it is. Solomon's the one who builds the temple, but the temple is built in the 10th century BC and it only lasts till the 6th. It's flattened and leveled when the Babylonians take the Israelites into exile in the 6th century BC. It's only a shadow. The glory of the Lord enters the Solomonic temple, but when Herod builds his second temple, the glory of the Lord never enters it. That's not what we're looking for. We know that because Jesus is sitting in the shadow of Herod's temple. In John chapter 2, he says, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. Remember that? And the disciples later said, ooh, he's not talking about cedar and bricks. He's talking about his body. That's why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, something greater than Solomon is here. And he meant himself. You've got to read 2 Samuel 7 and say, Big things are going on here. Yeah, I know it's just a trickle from a beautiful, high, lofty Swiss Alp glacier. But man, oh man, I can't wait to see the way that lake looks down in Geneva 
And beyond that, I can't wait to get to the shore of the Mediterranean where I see all of this is sitting to point me to Jesus Christ. We misread the Bible if you stop before you get to Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 through 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Woe to anybody who puts unholy hands on the church of Jesus Christ around the world. Woe to those governments who think that they can do anything to harm or threaten or thwart the church of Jesus Christ. God says, I'm coming after you. If you do. The way a jealous, godly husband protects his bride. This glorious temple. Not just the building. But the person of Jesus Christ and all the believers who are the church in him. United to him, we bear his name. God is jealous for his name to be glorified and seen through us. How does that apply? Just a minute ago, I I applied the first promise by saying, love the truth. We're going to be a pillar and buttress of the truth. Listen to the way the Apostle Paul actually quotes our chapter, 2 Corinthians 7, in the very last part of a passage, I'm going to read to you from 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 18. But let me tell you ahead of time the summary of what I want you to see. Paul looks at 2 Samuel 7 and he sees that God says he's going to make Solomon and through him ultimately Jesus his son. He's going to call him son. And the outcome is that should make us treat each other with honor like covenant family members. That's the logic. Listen to it from the Bible. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God said. And then he quotes Leviticus and another passage in 2 Samuel 7. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. And then I will welcome you. And now second Samuel seven. And I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Here's the logic. Because God says he has a love relationship with David, Solomon, and Solomon's further descendant, Jesus. You who are in Jesus ought to treat each other with special covenant love and care so everybody knows God is glorious. People ought to come to the landing and they ought to see the way we relate to one another. If they're checking out a church, they should stand back and they should watch and see how many people come and greet them. Yes, thank you for coming to the landing. Welcome. What's your name? And so and so. That's all good. But they should also look out of the corner of their eye and see the way you relate to each other and say, my, how they care for each other. People ought to go to the children's ministry and the youth ministry and all the team ministries and they say, wow, do they care for each other so well? They humble themselves in front of each other. They're kind to each other. They must serve a glorious God. See the logic? 
That's what Paul's saying here. In marriages, there's equal yoke. Husband and wife, loving Christ, loving each other. And that's an undeniable evidence that God's name is glorious and holy. The way the New Testament inspired author like Paul reads 2 Samuel 7 is to say, if God has appointed Christ as he has as his eternal son to sit on the throne of David, then that will create covenant relationships in marriages and in churches and in businesses and in friendships and in ministries and all throughout life that bear witness to the glory and beauty of God. Third promise. God's grace surpasses any man-made building. You remember he's helping through speaking to Nathan at night, he's helping David say, God, I, I need a bigger view of you. I need to see your greatness. I need to see your glory. And now I need to see your grace. All of them are so big, they can't be contained in any man-made building. Look at 2 Samuel 7, verses 14 and 15. This is where I get this. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity... I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. How does David hear that? So, so my boys, when they sin against you, God, your promise is you're not going to withdraw your love from them. You're going to discipline them. You're going to use even other men to discipline them, but you're not going to withdraw your love from them. Thank you, God. Don't you pray that for your children if you have children or grandchildren? Oh, God, they might be out of your will, but don't let them be out of your care. Let your steadfast love remain on them. But, but, but then quickly, David surely thought, it isn't just them who need your steadfast love and your forgiveness and your discipline. I need it too. I need it too. Surely David is thinking about his children. They are little ones probably at the time of this Prophetic word coming to him. Surely David himself has committed sin already in his life. And there's more sin yet to come as we're aware. Surely David is aware here that God has said, I know that sinners will come from your line. And when they sin, it is my inclination not to wipe them out as would be justice. But I will show them mercy and I will cause my steadfast love not to depart from him. But look with me more carefully. The rod of men and the stripes of the sons of men isn't just a reference to the appointment of discipline from human beings. It's also a, an appointment and a reference, I'm convinced, to the final treating as a sinner by human beings upon the son of David, the son of God, Jesus Christ. God's steadfast love never departs from Jesus, though he appoints Jesus to become sin. In order that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In Exodus four. God told Moses to tell Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son, and in Psalm eighty nine. It says, he shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. 
And then all through the rest of the Bible. So many times I couldn't even begin to count them. I came up with at least 20 and then I just quit counting and I'm only going to give you one. So many times in the rest of the Bible, Jesus Christ is called the son of God and the son of David. Hebrews 1, 5, for instance, is a direct quote of 2 Samuel 7, 14. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son. Today I have begotten you or again I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. A direct quote from 2 Samuel 7, 14. What this means gloriously is that if you're in Christ, if you're trusting in him, and I hope right now, if you haven't experienced this, you're saying, I don't know everything that that the Bible teaches and everything that's being talked about. But I want this reality right now. I want to be the one who's trusting in God by uniting myself to Jesus Christ. I'm going to believe in him. I'm going to pray to him. I'm going to talk to him. I'm going to say, Lord, receive me and I receive you. Forgive me of my sin the way you forgave David and Solomon and sinners who come to you, Old and New Testament and across the globe. God keeps his promise to David, not only through Solomon and his sons, but he keeps his promise to David climactically in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not the first person to declare this. Paul declared it in Acts 13 when he preached in Antioch of Pisidia. Listen carefully. Paul is saying, we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second Psalm. You are my son today. I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken in this way. And he quotes. In summary fashion, 2 Samuel 7, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if this very moment is the moment you're trusting in Christ, then every promise God makes to David is yours through Jesus. Chiefly the promise that when you sin, his steadfast love does not withdraw from you. Sometimes you might feel that, right? You might feel like you've committed a sin and you, you say, Lord, I, I told you I wasn't going to commit the sin anymore. And here I'm committing the same sin. I didn't want to, but part of me wanted to. I don't want to lie to you. Please, Lord, help me not just forgive me of this sin, but give me the grace to overcome and gain victory over it. So I don't keep coming back to this same pile of vomit over and over and over. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Romans four. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. Past, present and future. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, he does not count your sin against you, but he counts Christ's righteousness for you. And he looks upon you in that very same way. He loves you with the very same love with which he loves his son, Jesus Christ, who never sinned at all, but became sin on our behalf. This is the putting away of the shame and the guilt and the anxiety of the mud pies in the ghetto that C.S. Lewis talks about, and coming all the way down with me to the Mediterranean for a holiday at the sea. If you have not experienced the forgiveness of your sins in this thoroughgoing, full way, today may be the day. Come up to the 
right and left or talk with someone here whom you know and ask them to pray with you and talk to you about what it's like to experience for the first time the full forgiveness of your sins. The very gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is embedded right here in this glacier dripping in 2 Samuel 7 that becomes the beautiful river Rhone flowing down the Swiss Alps of God's glory. Finding number four. 2 Samuel 7, 16. God's greatness, God's glory, God's grace all surpassed any man-made house, David. Now, finally see this. God's guardianship surpasses any man-made house. God's guardianship surpasses any man-made house. Verse 16, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Actually, in this passage, three times the Lord uses the term forever. What does he mean for us to receive from that? He means your salvation in me is absolutely secure. That's what he means. Your salvation in me is absolutely secure. The forever means, you know, you look up the Hebrew word behind this word forever. You know what it means? Forever. It means God never quits on his bride. He never divorces his bride. Never. Doesn't that bless you? That God is the kind of God who says, I and my nature is eternal. And for me to set my love on the people of the landing or on the believers around the world at any time and place is for me to put my own name on display. If I give up on them, it looks like I'm a promise breaker. God's glory is too precious to him. So it's not about just how perfect you live your life. It's actually all about him being faithful to him. That's where the security comes from. That's why I would die for the doctrine of eternal security. You should too. You should love it and teach it and believe it and let your life rest on it like a mighty timber underneath your feet. Way better than any cedar building David got built for himself. The one who conquers will have this heritage. Revelation 21, 7. And I will be his God and he will be my son. I'm glad the Bible uses the word will all the time. (laughs) Listen to the final declaration of the risen and reigning Christ in Revelation 22. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. Death can't blow off God's love to you. Sin can't blow off God's love to you. Evil can't blow off God's love to you. And time can't blow off God's love to you. For God, so you say this with me, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. So when trouble comes. It's so troubling in Israel right now. Lord, give Israel repentance and trusting in Jesus, their Messiah. It's troubling in other Middle Eastern nations. It's troubling in Russia and Ukraine. It's troubling throughout Africa. It's trouble in North and South America and in Asia. When trouble comes, the church of Jesus Christ stands up and speaks the voice of God. And when the church of Jesus Christ stands up and speaks the voice of God, everything because of the voice of God starts shaking. That's the appointed role God has given to us as a church, a prophetic role in the power of the Holy Spirit 
speaking the voice of God. And when the voice of God is heard, everything starts shaking. That can be shaken. The only thing that doesn't shake is God's appointed kingdom, the kingdom of his son through David. The son of David, the son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. I get that from Hebrews 12. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. This is the writer saying to the whole world. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. How does he do it? With the voice of his church. This phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Don't build me a house, David. Don't you, church, try to build something for me, because when I talk, it's all going to come crumbling down. I'll expose it as useless and phony. And thus let us offer to God. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Did David get these things? Peek ahead with me. Look down at your passage of scripture. Peek ahead with me. Nathan wakes up in the morning. Man, thank you, God. I should have talked to you first. Because I told David to go ahead and do whatever was in his heart. I better go grab him. I think I hear the, the power tools going. Nathan gets up, runs down the hallway, goes into the royal workroom, <laughs> the royal garage, and says, David, we've got to talk. I just woke up, but I heard from the Lord last night. You're going to want to hear this. You're not building a house for God. Did David get it? How did David respond? You've got to see this. Look at verse 18 and 19 with me. This is David's response. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I? O Lord God, And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? Did he get it? Yes, he did. He got it. He got it. And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken through Nathan also of your servant's house. See, he's switching the house to house just like God did for a great while to come. (laughs) Yep. Like as in forever. And this is instruction for all mankind, O Lord God. Everybody learn from David. Every tribe and tongue and people look at David. Everybody thirsty from every land come. Notice David and this and this beautiful Lake Geneva and then taste and see that that's actually a foretaste of the Mediterranean in Jesus Christ. David exists to point As a lesson book, as a teacher, as an instruction for the whole world, one scholar named Walter Kaiser calls this the charter for mankind, 2 Samuel 7. 
Second Samuel seven is the answer to all the sin that comes to pass in Genesis one through three. Second Samuel seven is the pointer to how to receive Jesus Christ in all the Gospels. Second Samuel seven is the basis for all the blessings Paul sings of and soars of in Romans chapter eight. Second Samuel seven is the proof that every promise in Revelation comes to pass and shall. That's why I said at the beginning, this is one of the most important passages in all the Bible. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for 2 Samuel 7, even the first half of it. And I thank you for the privilege that you give to us to meditate on it and pour over it to prepare our hearts, not only to get smaller, but for us to see how big you really are. And in growing downward, you are magnified and grow larger, upward and wider and deeper and higher than we could have imagined. You are up to more in this world than any one person can fully fathom And so we thank you for showing us just a glimpse of how great you are in this passage of Scripture. We thank you that your son, Jesus Christ, is the final fulfillment of everything that you promised in 2 Samuel 7 and throughout the whole Old Testament. We thank you that he's alive and listening and moving by his spirit within our hearts and upon us. And for those of us who have a sweet memory of his saving, forgiving work in our lives, we come to you now. And we want to, as it were, put our cup into the Mediterranean and taste and see that you are good. We take of this bread and this cup as symbols of the fact that we're thankful that you died upon the cross to forgive not only David's and Solomon's sin, but ours too. And not only ours, but all who come to you throughout the rest of time and from all places on the planet. There's no person in this room who's disqualified from coming to you, Lord. They can come to you simply freely by grace. All whom you draw will come. And all whose hearts move them will come. And they will all be treated the same as forgiven, beloved, adopted sons of the Most High God through faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, we play no games with you and your word. If there's anyone here that is not yet trusting in you, then do not let them take of this bread in this cup for to take of it in an unworthy manner and to not regard the body of Christ with full honor and joy is to invite sickness and death. So with sober joy, we gather ourselves around this table at your invitation. You are the son of the father and we are sons in you. We join with believers around the world on this Lord's Day and say, Lord, thank you so much for dying on the cross for my sins. I receive it afresh and remember it anew and celebrate you with my heart, soul, mind and strength. In Jesus name we pray. Amen.